prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, a good old geek out session with Patton Oswalt. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Patton Oswalt is the guest today, shockingly a first-time guest on Happy, Sad, Confused. One of those that you would think would be like, at least uh, appear once, if not be a regular. But I guess our paths haven't crossed as much as I would have hoped over the years, uh, as much as I am a fan of Patton's comedy, his film work, his TV work, just being an all-around uh, cinephile and geek. He is uh, he is a like-minded individual, somebody that I feel simpatico with, and I'm, I have a feeling if you listen to this podcast, you probably admire and love Patton as much as I do. This was a fun, as I said, it's a geek out session. This is just kind of a 45 minutes of reveling in all the movies that we love, all the genre stuff we love, all the B movies we love. Patton is actually promoting a uh, kind of a B movie marathon that he's hosting for Shout Factory. Um, it begins Saturday, this Saturday, November 7th at 9 a.m. Pacific time, 12 noon Eastern time. There's an encore presentation on Sunday, November 8th at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern time. And it is a live stream of six uh, classic, I guess, maybe is classic the right word? I don't know. Notorious B movies that Patton has selected, including uh, Chopping Mall, Battle Beyond the Stars, Shriek of Mutilated, Suburbia, Eat My Dust, and Cue the Winged Serpent. So if you want to watch those six movies along with Patton Oswalt, go to ShoutFactoryTV.com. Uh, you can also watch it on Shout Factories on the app on, on Roku and Amazon, on Apple TV, etc. You can't miss it. Um, yeah, always good to, to geek out with Pat and Oswald. We talk about those movies, but we also talk, of course, about his comfort movie. His selection was a bit surprising to me, but a cool one. Uh, we're talking the, a classic whodunit. We'll get to that in a bit. We also, of course, talk um, some Star Wars. We, we reassess. We, I got his take on on the rise of Skywalker, which I was curious about. Um, he's a fan of Mandalorian. No surprise there. Um, yeah, we touched on a lot of cool stuff. So this was, this was long in the making, long overdue, but I'm glad it happened. Pat and Oswalt, the main event on Happy, Sad, Confused today. Uh, it's a, and speaking of today, it's a weird day. If you're listening to this on the day we drop it, it's election day, guys. And it's, um, I don't know if you listen to this weeks in the future, years in the future, months in the future. I don't know what this introduction will sound like. Was this the beginning of a new wonderful era? in the United States where we righted the wrongs of the last four years? Or was this the day when we sank further into the malaise, the misery, the totalitarianism of the crazy man that is Donald Trump? I'm hoping it's the former. If you're listening to this on election day and you have not voted yet, get out there and vote. Look out for your fellow citizens. Every vote counts, guys. If you get online, be prepared to wait, wait it out. Some of the lines might be long. Um, and, and just keep a level head today and yes, in the days to come, we might not know the results for, uh, for a little while and that is okay. We want every vote to be counted. Okay. That's what the way it's always been. It just so happens because of the pandemic, it might take a little longer this year and that is all right. 
Um, other things to mention besides our teetering democracy. Um, no new episode of Stir Crazy this week. We took the week off because of the election, but that doesn't mean you can't check out all the uh, old episodes of Stir Crazy we've done for Comedy Central. We've done something like 30 of them by now, I think, which is crazy to me. Um, there's some really uh, great ones if you want to dig up the the Will Ferrell one all the way back to the beginning, Will Arnett. There, there are people we talked to that didn't have the first name Will, by the way. Um, and some really cool guests to come. I'll, I will mention, I, usually I don't like to jinx it, but we've already taped this one. Next week's episode of Stir Crazy is with one of my favorites, Zachary Quinto, and he brought his A-game super funny episode of Stir Crazy next week on Comedy Central's YouTube and Facebook pages. Also got a chance to talk to a bunch of cool folks for MTV recently. My interview with Emma Roberts is up, talking about her new Netflix movie, Holiday. I talked to Jack Dylan Grazer about We Are Who We Are, his HBO series. So, uh, yeah, keep it busy, guys. Trying to stay sane in an insane year. Hope you guys are safe and healthy. Hope you're wearing masks and keeping your distance from folks and just being smart and healthy because uh, that's the most important thing to uh, keep a level head in these crazy times. Um, All right, here's a little distraction for you guys. Uh, As I said, a fun 45-minute chat with the great Patton Oswalt. You can check out his movie Marathon, ShoutFactoryTV.com, and his myriad of projects. He's always working. Um, follow Patton on, on Twitter and Instagram. He is a good follow and a good conversationalist, as evidenced by this chat with the one and only Patton Oswalt. Uh, it's taken a while, but I'm happy finally to have you on the podcast. And uh, mm-hmm. there's always a lot to talk to you about. It, it, you know, this this year's been insane. It's been kind of a, a pause for a lot of us. I, my sense mm-hmm. from you is that you're a bit of a workaholic. How is how is? Yeah, uh, I like working. I like doing stuff. So how has this year been for you? Have you taken a pause or have you kind of revved it up or what? I took a pause when the shutdown happened just because I didn't know what was going to be next. And I just was more concerned with like, how do I keep my daughter's school going? How do I, you know, make sure my family is safe, make sure my parents are okay? So I was kind of focused on that. I wasn't really focused on work. And then it just got down to like, well, my normal state of being is trying to create stuff. So I'm just going to keep trying to create stuff. I just pivoted into writing for comic books and, and writing, you know, stuff like that. Uh, so that's just what I've been doing. And now I did a Zoom show a couple weeks ago, tried that out. So I'm just slowly, you know, uh, getting into that kind of groove, I guess. Yeah, I feel like we've, we've all rejiggered depending yeah, on occupations. Yeah. Like, okay, how do I exactly. fit what I used to do into this new paradigm? Yeah. Um, and and, and th- <laughs> thankfully for some of us, it works in the Zoom boxes. We can still do a version of what we used to do at least. Yeah. Um, so talk to me. Okay, we're, we're, we're going to geek out a little bit uh, today about some of your favorite movies, some of your favorite B-movies, some of your uh, favorite comfort movie. But I want to go back first to how you formed your movie tastes as a kid. Did you have a, was it from your parents? Was it from a friend? Was it from a sibling? Who was the influencer in your life that helped kind of chart your path as a movie lover? You know, I grew up in the 70s, so I think I'm, um, I'm of the generation that our influencer was purely chance. There wasn't really the, the, the structure in place for movie freaks to be um, uh, dipping into the, oh, go see this. This is a lot. Uh, a really early one was, a I mean, I guess there was a book called the Golden Turkey Awards, which is the first place that I ever heard about people, you know, people like Ed Wood, yep, um, stuff like that. And then, um, and, and again, a lot of the movies that they were 
saying were shitty in this uh, book sounded fascinating to me. You know, they, I mean, they're, the Golden Turkey Awards list stuff like Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Pink Flamingos, which are all just brilliant, brilliant fucking movies. Um, so, you know, I, I that, but, but, but really before that, it was whatever I just happened to come across on TV or just ran. And by the way, that's what makes a lot, of, I think the first wave of real cult movies like Plan 9 from Outer Space, for instance, they really do have a cult quality because they, because there was no structure, they really were just shown at 2 a.m. on some local station and someone would watch it and years later meet someone else who had also randomly seen it and they would share their yep. thoughts on it. And it really did have a truly a viral um, second life. Uh, but then, you know, then um, I think the the structure, the infrastructure um, kind of fell into place in the 80s and 90s and it became an industry of finding cult stuff. And then some stuff was like prematurely tried, people tried to make stuff cult. Like um, I remember Showgirls, you know, right. there was like a very aggressively early cult around that that then just kind of didn't stick. It's just not a great movie. It just isn't, <laughs> I mean, I know, you know, like th there, there's like, there's fiasco bad, which you're like, wow, I really can't believe this is happening. And then there's just bad, it's just bad, you know? Yeah. Exactly. So like a, a, a true cult movie has to take time. You cannot force it. I, I have a soft spot. I don't know about you. And this doesn't necessarily fit some of the ones that you're going to mention, I think, in a little bit. But I have a soft spot for, like, the epic failures, for, like, the $150 yes. million. Like, yes. there, there, there was never, a, a, like, a, a better one-two punch for me than when Kevin Costner did Waterworld and The Postman in back-to-back -back years. It was – here's what was weird. Waterworld and The Postman are, yeah, are massively epic failures that both start off with – it also shows you, you can have the grain of an interesting idea. There's really interesting ideas in those movies. They just don't execute them. And all the stuff with how they work out, like how Kevin Costner makes that boat work in Waterworld is kind of brilliant. Like oh, yeah. real thought and design and character work were put into those sequences, but it's in the middle of all this other silliness that you're just like, I, why didn't you just put a little more work into the other shit so that we wouldn't be you know, constantly being taken out of it. And then The Postman, which again, I mean, it, it it's a little slow and weird, but it's, I, I remember seeing it, I remember very specifically going to see that at the Alhambra in San Francisco with Greg Proops and Dave Anthony, and we were laughing our asses off the whole way through. But now we're in 2020, and that movie seems to take place in the aftermath of the riots over a disputed election and, and um, will... Patton's character is kind of a kind of a proud boy patriot Ooh, prayer right. type guy that like be you know so there's weird and and, and also you know there's um I think Tom, my brother if, pointed if, if out Tom, if Tom Petty shows up out of nowhere out of the yeah. bed, then we're who knows we're we I mean and he's con trying to be an influencer I guess I mean you know my my brother pointed out on Twitter you know now with the polar ice caps melting and the president trying to shut down the postal service I think we owe Kevin Costner a big apology because he kind of called a couple things in those movies. And what was really tragic about those two movies back to back was the movie he made after that is a movie, a Western called Open Range, which is a legitimately brilliant Oscar worthy film. But because Kevin, the, the name Kevin Costner had become this shorthand for, oh boy, 
no one went and saw it. And it's a, it's a fucking brilliant movie. Yeah, that's a good call. It's I need to go so back to good. it. It's he, like, he, he directed that one. He directed it. It's a great story, like nonstop great performances. He's great in it. Duvall's great. Annette Benning is great in it. Like, it's just nonstop good. Right. And But at the time, everyone was like, oh, God, another Kevin Costner. I can't. And it's too bad because that was really, really good. So segueing into maybe not quite as ambitious failures, uh, you're doing this thing for Shout Factory, which is kind of like a movie marathon coming up, right? I'm and- doing a 12-hour – that's, again, look, I, there's a lot of things that I miss – because of the shutdown, because of coronavirus. You know, everyone has personal things I'm sure that they miss. People miss, you know, getting to go to concerts. People miss getting to, you know, just be out in a park all day and, and just, you know, all that fun stuff But or, or going to a sporting event. I miss going to movies. I miss going to movies and especially this year, Halloween on a Saturday night where the next day is Sunday with an extra hour. The, the all-night marathons this year could have been epic, and we missed all of them. So I tried to recreate that feeling, and I picked um, Shout Factory. Really let me go deep into their vaults. And they were, they, were, they were weirdly non-judgmental about what I picked. I mean, I picked some ones that are genuinely entertaining. I've got Penelope Spheres' Suburbia in there. I've got Eat My Dust, which is a very underrated um, Roger Corman ripoff of Smokey and the Bandit, where – it was that there was that window of the seventies where um, safety was not a thing that was considered with stunts. Like they just basically kind of said, let's film this. And then everyone, if anyone dies, let's just run. Let's just everyone bolt. We don't have anyone here. So there's some stunts in, there's a stunt by the way, in a, there's a early Steven Spielberg film called the Sugarland Express. And there's a stunt at the end where a guy on top of a news van gets knocked when a car hits it. And if you watch that scene, it's like, I think that guy like broke his pelvis. Or, like it looks, he goes down so hard and ugly. And at the time they're just like, I'm give him $50 and keep him quiet. Like it's just so brutal. Yeah. Um, but so there's Eat My Desk. But then in the middle of it, despite all these fun, bad films I have, I did pick one called Shriek of the Mutilated because there has to be always in the movie marathon, there's got to be that one movie where the fascination is in watching that nothing fucking works. Like nothing works in this movie. They actually went for something. They didn't even have him. They didn't even have ambition to do anything great. And they still couldn't even get to there. (laughs) And there's something kind of beautiful about it to go. Wow. It is a, my friend, um, Nathan Rabin, he's a movie writer, uh, and, and pop culture critic. He has a term called, uh, the shitty miracle, where a like, look, you can even great films have a couple of moments that don't quite work. Even shitty films will have a moment that works where you're like, oh wow. But then every now and then a movie comes where fucking nothing works. And that's actually really hard to pull off. <laughs> and so when you see that like Shriek of the Mutilated, you're going, Yeah, god damn it, I gotta give some credit. That's beautiful. I, I, I admit you have really filled in. I mean, I, I'm familiar with some of these, but most of these, frankly, I, you know, I consider myself a decent cinephile, but I, I, I kick myself for not never seeing Q, for instance, which I've heard about for years. Oh, dude. Q the Wing Serpent is fucking fascinating. That was a, it's a Larry Cohen film. Um, Rod, and he was working on another Roger Corman film. He got fired. And so he wrote this movie in two days in his, I think he had his hotel room for an extra two days or something cranked it out it is it is one of the dumbest claymation monster movies ever made with 
one of the best performances I've ever seen in a movie. Michael Moriarty does the most intense method acting performance you've ever seen. Um, I mean, it will it will blow you away. And, and there's a famous story where um, they showed the movie. It, it, it showed it can not in the prestige part of can there's another part the international film mark where you just show up like can i just sell this to singapore and make exactly. my money back that yeah. i spent yeah. so they they screened it at can and rex reed was in the audience for some reason i guess it was like an afternoon he had and he and he comes out of the theater and arkoff the producer sam z arkoff is there and he's like i can't what is going on you've got this amazing Michael Moriarty performance in the middle of all this dreck. And then Arkoff goes, the dreck was my idea. Like he was so <laughs> proud of himself. There's something so great about. So yeah, and I end I end the marathon on that because that is the, that's kind of the, the, the central idea of the whole thing is just embrace your dreck. And if you embrace it hard enough, you might find something amazing in it. Again, one of the all-time great film performances is in, one of the dumbest movies ever made. Well, it's it, pretty stunning. It was on the list anyway. Now it's risen higher uh, thanks to Dude. you. Dude, I mean, honestly, you're like, there must have been a meeting at New World where they were going, and, and by the way, there were consistent reviews going, it's this stupid fucking monster movie, but Michael Moriarty, my God, it's, you know, <laughs> Ebert, like Ebert's review was like, you have to see this from Moriarty. So there must have been like an hour meeting of, do we do an Oscar campaign? Like, how do like how do we pull this? I mean, they didn't do it, but there must have been that discussion of we have a legitimate, we could get yeah. go for an Oscar on this goddamn thing, and they should have. It, it's an Oscar-worthy performance. It's like Daniel Day Lewis in a supporting role in, in Leprechaun Three. Well, how did he end up in that? What's what the fuck did did his did he need to resurface his pool? What's going on? You know. So yeah. What's your what's your appetite generally for marathons like movie theater marathons? Like have you have you ever done those like famed like Austin but Numathon twenty four hour things? I, every time the but Numathon or the QT Fest would happen, I was like I was cursed. I was always working. I've always always wanted to do those. I've done. Um, I've done an all-night marathon at the Orpheum downtown. That was in the in the nineties. I and then also in the nineties I did an all-night marathon at the Cinerama Dome, which was amazing. Beautiful Prince. And I did one at the new Beverly, but I never was able to do Button Amathon. And especially I've wanted to do QT Fest uh at the um at the um uh Alamo. I mean, once the you know, once the lockdown ends safely and we have a, a vaccine we can trust, I would love to do go back to my that now it's weird. I grew up in the suburbs. I had no access to any kind of good art film or anything like that. And now in my hometown of Sterling, Virginia, there's a Alamo draft house. No kidding. That I could have yeah, and it just drives me fucking crazy. <laughs> have you been to like, a, I could have grown up with that? Have you been to a theater since all of this? I haven't. No. You I would no, I would never yeah. go no, you can't. Yeah. You, can't i just i watch stuff on you know on tv i'm trying to you know weirdly i've i've gone down i've gone down a really nice i mean i'm very lucky i have the criterion channel and they did that whole um noir western thing in the summer they just did a month last month 70s horror movies so i was able to just all oh, that great let's scare jessica to death and you know uh, uh the brood and the crazies and texas chainsaw that great golden age of 
American horror movies where it was about like America itself is part of the problem. It's just the rot and the unease and the paranoia is is the monster. It's so fucking great to watch. So, so you, you did go 70s when I asked you to pick a specific comfort movie, but it's certainly yes. not 70s horror. It's one that I, I, I hadn't seen in a while. I revisited it last night. Um, mm-hmm. And oh, well, there's a lot to talk about. I'm, I'm curious. So let's talk about your comfort movie. Tell us what you chose and, and in brief why you chose it. I chose 1974's Murder on the Orient Express. Sidney Lumet Hot off of Dog Day Afternoon in Serpico. I was, that like, was, I was gonna say that. I know, oh that's God. what drives me. Sidney Lumet, and it's, he's, it, it's such a great movie. You're like, he, he could just do high-end, like, you know, uh, uh, cozy British mystery films the rest of his career. He was so good at that. It's still the best depiction of Poirot. Sorry, David Suchet, I love you, but that Albert Finney is amazing. It, including the fact that when Albert Finney was doing the movie, he was also doing a play in the West End. So he would do the play at night. He would go home and sleep. And they sent an ambulance to his house with two guys that would, he would stay asleep. They'd put him on a stretcher, put him in the back of the ambulance, quietly drive him to the studio and then start him into makeup. And then he would wake up in the makeup chair. So he could just get that extra sleep, shoot for the day, and then go do the play at night. Like just a, just an absolute monster. And um, uh, a cast of just nothing but ringers. Nothing but ringers. Um, and um, it is a very cozy um, movie about a murder on a high-end luxury train, the Orient Express, the Calais coach. But, what, but what's hidden in the movie, um, that's, that doesn't, it doesn't tell you that it's about it, but it's also about it's this whole way of living that's about to go away. It's post-World War I. They're thinking maybe there's going to be another war that they mentioned a couple times. There's, you know, Rachel Roberts plays kind of a neo-Nazi. Um, uh, Anthony Perkins is clearly a closeted, um, you know, but everyone, everyone is just, it's that repressive old Victorian era that's crumbling and they believed in a system of laws and closure that completely betrayed them. So they've got to take the law into their own hands and kill an American gangster that, um, and, and again, yes, it's a G-rated, not horror movie, except that the actual murder sequence, the way that it's filmed is so fucking scary and disturbing, like genuinely disturbing for a movie that has no cursing, has no, I mean, there's no blood, there's no, but the way they shoot the murder scene actually kind of harkens to, I have, I've always said that, John Carpenter's Halloween, the original one, if released today, except for like very brief nudity, would just be a PG-13. There's there's very little violence. It's all suggested. It's all yeah. off screen. Um, murder on the Orient Express, the um, uh, the murder scene in Murder on the Orient Express is more horrifying than anything in the movie Halloween. In terms of just sustained violence and the angle he shoots it at, it's so disturbing. When did you encounter this, Patton? This was at, this came out when you were like five years old, so I assume it no, was this was, and this, is- I, this was I don't I forget it might have been in college or something, but there was just something about this because I'm very OCD, so I'm very this kind of OCD guy, just kind of in his own little world, Hercule Poirot, and he has to like not only does he have to like put this he kind of puts it together spitefully because at the end he has to realize actually this murder was done for actually good reasons and I can't actually arrest who did it. 
and he has to make this bigger moral choice, which is, again, foreshadows these massive moral choices that were that world was about to be put through right. in a very weird way. Um, it, so there was just something, it just hit me, it hit me at the right goddamn time. And also, it, Sidney Lumet, he's just an amazing filmmaker. He's amazing with images. They pull you in. Um, he's amazing at directing actors so that you're just constantly can't keep your eye off the screen. I just love it. You, you alluded to a, a bit and you mentioned some of the actors, but this is one of those like classic 70s like ensembles that, that, oh. that I think you alluded to this also where you're saying it's kind of the last gasp of, of an old world. That pertains to the, the acting too. It's like Richard Winmark and then, but then it's like Michael York. So it's like these different generations kind of colliding. It's like Ingrid Bergman, yeah. Warren Bacall and Feel good, but then Anthony Perkins, Martin Balsam, like these great character actors, these great icons, oh. Sean Connery, by the way. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, well, also, I mean, just the fact that it, it's, there's so many things going on in the terms of, you know, they wanted Ingrid Bergman to play um, uh, the um, uh, Lauren Bacall part. She goes, no, I want to play the kind of mentally um, um, disabled uh, nurse. Right. She won an Oscar for it. She did. Um, uh, Richard Widmark, who basically, this is how cool Richard Widmark was. He goes, I took the role because I just wanted to meet all these actors. I'm such a fan of all of them. So like the fact that a guy of that stature, Richard Widmark, who's such an icon, especially of like film noir yep. and everything, but, but he's still a fan of the movies. Like I get to meet Sean Connery. I'd love to talk to him. Like, <laughs> so that was really, you know, it, and then in the middle of it, Albert Finney, just this absolute powerhouse. And it's so brilliant. You've got, 12 of the world's well actually 14 of the world's best actors and they and the whole last 20 minutes they can't speak while he goes on so there's real tension in that room of like how fucking long do i have to sit here while you know and you know and, and you know how it, what it takes to make a movie that must have taken days if not weeks to get all those angles and so the tension is just excruciating when you watch that final scene some of it's the greatest amazing. Some of the greatest mustache work, I would say, in any film, by the way. Not, not, not only Poirot, by the way. I mean, Poirot's iconic mustache is one thing, but you got Connery, Martin Balsam's rocking like this pencil-thin job. Mm-hmm. Fine yeah. They're all around, and that should not be ignored. And Connery is being such an anti-James Bond, just this stuffy, racist. He, he makes, he does that joke about... Um, I was I was I was yawning with with young what's his name. He thought that the British should leave India. Can you believe that? Like he plays a character who goes, "Can you believe this idiot Gandhi?" I mean, come on. So, and, but but you're supposed to sympathize with him. It's oh god, it's so fucking good. So where do you come down on the 2017 recent remake? Kenneth Branagh, who's somebody that I respect a lot, yeah, like I a lot of his films. Too. Did it just not work for you, and, and, and why? Yeah, it just, there was too many. They added all this personal backstory to Poirot, which you don't need. All the all the, the character work you need of Poirot is the way that Albert Finney, his face, before he finally walks down that hallway at the end when he's made the decision that he's made, and he looks at how everyone else is reacting, but he realizes it's very much like John Wayne and the Searchers or, or Jimmy Stewart at the end of Call Northside 777. I've helped to bring some justice in the world, but I'm also not a part of it personally. Like there's something removed and, and am I diminished because of that? And right. that's all you need. You don't need all his picture of the woman and then it gets broken. And then, the you know, it's just like, guys, God damn it. So, you know, 
there was something very frustrating about watching that. Also, I thought that the um, the the when when the David Suchet Poirot series did their version of it, they did an amazing version of it and had Poirot do some kind of make some surprising decisions without without ruining the faith of the original text. He really um, they they did some really cool and and actually did way more realistic of what it's like to be in a train trapped in a snowdrift and you have to actually have pack everyone in the same room or they all freeze to death and like that kind of so that was really interesting it just that yeah in the brana one it just did and i love kenneth brana that his um oh why can't i think of the name that that he does an amazing police series the swedish one a wallander right oh my god it's yeah. so good and, and, so and even good. in the crime genre one of my favorites of his is dead again very early on. yes dead against brilliant and also, I just Poirot has to. He really. I will give him this. He does nail the. I am OCD to a fault. I'm OCD to a point where it negatively affects my life. Right. And my but, Poirot's got to be fat. He's got to be fat. God damn it! <laughs> and so you know that when when Tony um, Randall played played Poirot in the ABC Murders, um, uh, uh, Malkovich was okay plays kind of an older poirot they kind of made him chubby and then um uh god what's his name from prick up your ears and um spider-man 2 play doc ock he played him in a oh, team uh, alfred molina alfred molina but but they they made him like he was having a romance with one of the it just is like no he he needs to be this weird kind of on the spectrum genius that but still has has a moral compass and that's what he's wrestling with you know totally so yeah looking at your you you've worked with so many interesting filmmakers throughout your career and you're obviously right. steeped in all of this stuff early on you know you work with someone like pta right on magnolia yeah yeah so like did you for instance as a cinephile as somebody that kind of like knew and appreciated great work and great filmmakers did you mm -hmm. know back then he was coming off of boogie night so there was a lot of heat on him but i don't know if he had, he had like entered that rarefied atmosphere then did you know he had the goods on magnolia uh i knew he had the goods when i saw i don't want to sound braggy but when i saw hard eight and realized that he had made a sneak sequel to midnight run and managed to um again weave in uh, in, in what looks like the most simple throwaway story but then he weaved in stuff about guilt and responsibility and and regret and aging and youth and love i mean it was just something like wow this guy is Amazing. So he's, again, it, 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 when I saw Heart Eight, it reminded me of what it must have felt like for people to have seen like Who's That Knocking at My Door or Mean Streets for the first time going, oh, this is the start of a massively amazing yeah. career. Here we go. So yeah, I did, I did kind of know. And I was very excited to, uh, and I got the part in the most undramatic way. I was, we, everyone used to hang out at the Largo and, you know, on Monday nights, I, I did a set and walked back in the kitchen and there's PTA standing there with Flanagan, the owner, and we all knew each other. And he's like, Hey, I'm shooting my next movie. You want to do something? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, all right, on my, my personal call you. And that was just, I'm just like in the kitchen. I'm like, okay, thanks man. And it was great. Is there a director that's gotten away as some, again, somebody who appreciates the greats. Is there one that you've come close to working with that still sticks in your craw? Well, it, it's, it's, I can't say that it sticks in my craw because I, I'm, I believe that, people get their roles for a reason. And um, I came very, very close um, to being in um, 
the Coen brothers, uh, a serious man. Um, I, it was down to, um, me and, um, Richard kind as the brother-in-law and they were just like, he's better for the role. And I'm like, yes, he is. He's goddamn better. I love him. He'll be so amazing. But I got to go out, I flew out to Minnesota. We talked, traded our favorite onion stories, you know, read the pages and stuff. I talked about all their movies, talked about how, um, I go, you know, if you do hire me, it'll be the second Oswald that you use because my grandpa Oswald, the only time he ever worked in a movie, he just got like called in. He was retired and living in Arizona. He's one of the metal workers and you can see him standing behind Nicolas Cage in Raising Arizona at the beginning when he's working in that drilling sheet metal shop. He's one of the, but he's just behind him in goggles. I'm like, you know, if you want to have your second Oswald to say, you know, so, <laughs> and then I, we just, I, I asked him all these Sam Raimi questions about when they were starting. And all, so it was just, you know, I know I didn't get to be in a serious man, but I got to hang out with him for a while. And it was great because we're, we're big movie freaks. Yeah. And that just, that mattered. I mean, hopefully someday, I mean, I think there's stuff that they do is there's that, that's another one of those filmmakers that, Oh, when it, when anything comes out, yeah, drop everything. I'm going to go see it. I'm, I, I've mentioned this before, but I'm fascinated that for the first time they're directing separately, that Joel Cohen is directing his first film solo, this Macbeth uh, reinterpretation. Yeah. But then didn't, I mean, Ethan's done plays Ethan before, I know. Yeah, go ahead. Does like, um, he published a book, a short story. I mean, look, they they can do, it's like it's like Big Boy and Andre 3000. Do whatever <laughs> you want. I mean, go, if, if doing something by yourself keeps you creatively happy, then that means they'll yeah. get back together and do stuff later. It's not like they're going, never again. You know, totally, they, totally. of course they will. My God. You, you've had, I mean, how do you characterize your own acting career? Because when I look at the body of work, you know, before a conversation like this, there's, it's, it's, there's so much. And then it's, it's also dotted with kind of these fascinating, it feels like you're like in that Sandler thing where like every five years, like a really serious, cool filmmaker's like, I want to, I want Patton Oswalt to be, <laughs> I want him to be a young adult. I want him to be a big fan. Um, I wish, I mean, I, I mean, Sandler's career is fucking amazing. And I think he is a very, very, underrated um, performer, even in movies where, you know, I think people would go, oh, well, this is just this frivolous fun. There's moments in, especially um, uh, uh, um, Wedding Singer and um, Billy Madison that are fucking genius, you know? So, I, you know, that, that there's, there's a lot going on. There's more going on there that I think people see. That's just my opinion. But then, yeah, when he goes and does something, you know, Punch Drunk Love, and uncut gems were so fucking brilliant. How did he? How did he not get nom nominated for Punch Drunk Love? For God's sakes! I know that everyone's like, "Oh, it's an outrage." He didn't get nominated for Uncut Gems. Yes, it was an outrage. But fucking Punch Drunk Love, that little dance he does in the aisle when he—oh my fucking god! It's so brilliant. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Right. But, Sorry. But, but back to you, Patton. Are you fulfilled as an actor? Do you get enough to chew on as an actor? You, you... Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I've always said I'm in this for the money and the anecdotes. So I either <laughs> want to be in the best movies ever or the worst, and I have great stories about it. So I'd be just as excited um, to work with the Coen brothers as I would get to work with, like, Uwe Boll, you know, because like, I would get a cool story either way, right. and I get to travel someplace weird and do this absolutely. That's, you know... If you're just, if you're structuring your whole career around award season and trophy chasing, it gets really boring really fast. Have the adventures first and all that other shit works itself out. 
you know, and also I want time to do other things. You know, making movies is great. I still love doing stand-up. I still love getting to go watch movies. This is going to sound really pissy, but the first year that I went to Sundance, I went there with the film Big Fan, and as happy as I was to be there with Big Fan and support it, you know, but being there means you do every single interview that comes your way, which I did, but I was also, it was bittersweet because I, I have my fucking laminate. I can go see movies, and I, I only got to see two movies while I was there. Totally. So then, then they brought me back as a as a jury member on the short film jury, and that was fucking great. Watching short films at a film festival, that's all I want to do. If a film festival comes back, I just want to go back and I'll just, like if I ever got to go to Telluride or Toronto or even Cannes, I would just go see the shorts because you see all these young directors the like, wave. oh, that yeah. person, yeah, yeah, that person's going to be huge. I just saw it. It's so exciting. Um, I, I want to mention a couple things that you presumably have been working on in the last year. One I'm excited about is uh, Modoc. Yes. Talk to me a little bit about this is going to be for Hulu. Um, Modoc is basically uh, me and my friend Jordan Blum, who is a brilliant writer off Family Guy and um, American Dad. And he is a he has the deepest comic book knowledge. <laughs> I thought I had deep uh, deep brain uh, pits, but that dude. <laughs> and so he, we this this character Modoc, which is so he is such a ridiculously brilliant character, a super intelligent, angry floating head with little shrunken arms and legs and this little floating scooter that wants to rule the world, you know, and become Emperor Modox. We're like, how do you make a series about him from his point of view? And the idea, what I loved was the fact that he hates the Marvel superheroes, Spider-Man, Captain America, as much as he hates all the other villains. Because in his mind, I should be, it should be me and then Dr. Doom and the Green Goblin. And, but he's like down at fifth and sixth place and it drives him crazy. So he truly hates everyone. And he's his own worst enemy. And it's just comedically, it's so fun to play. And it's a, it's a, um, we took what could have been a very one note thing. And thanks to Jordan and his, and his writing and world building, we made a very deep kind of beautiful show about fatherhood and, um, family and ambition and um, humility um, with every everything in the Marvel toy box we wanted to use, they let us use, including some X-Men stuff, which I was shocked they let us use. And they're like, yeah, you can go ahead. And we're like, whoa, what? So that was really exciting. I, I, I don't know about you, but I can't believe how deep we are and how, just how many levels in we are into comic book, movie, TV shows. I mean, like, you know, you, you've got a couple years on me, but like, I remember growing up and it was like an event when like they made a flash TV show on yeah. CBS. It was like, there were so few and far between. And the, the fact that you're talking about MODOK and we have like all these, like the, these MCU now TV shows coming and all these multiverses like now, yeah. that's the next yeah. thing. It seems like both DC and Marvel are going to just basically embrace the multiverse thing. It's well, beyond. I think it's also because there's a generation that grew up on that stuff when it was very limited and it was being done by people that only saw this as a property. We'll just make some money and that's it. And they're like, well, no, there's a whole world here and you can use it to smuggle stories about, you know, racial inequality um, trans or gay rights, yep. um, uh, economic um, inequality. You can use that as a way, just like George Romero used Night of the Living Dead to basically he made a movie about 
how the late 60s America was burning to the fucking ground. He's like, no one wants to watch that. So I'm going to smuggle this in a monster movie. Right. And and that's happening now with superheroes, with, and especially, especially with horror films. The wave of horror movies coming up right now and these streaming platforms like Arrow and Shudder that are giving these filmmakers that can't get distribution, the, the movies that are coming out on these platforms are insane, are so good and so brilliant and are addressing all this stuff that's going on. Where are you at with uh, Star Wars right now? Are you watching Mandalorian? What was- I'm, I'm basically, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Mandalorian territory where I think that is the way for, oh my God. That is, <laughs> right that, around. Jesus Christ. Wait, is, is, um, this, is this the way? Is that what you're saying? This is the way. Okay. The stuff that they're doing with that show and the, and the places that they're the gaps that they're filling in, but without doing it, they're not they're not doing it with um to quote a brilliant South Park thing. They're not using uh the the member berries model. Remember this. Remember this. Remember it's there for a specific um, emotional or logical reason, rather than look at this. Look at this. Um, I don't know if it's I don't know when this episode drops. We probably shouldn't talk about episode one yet but some pretty big goddamn yes things happen in that yes which uh oh shit if it was what satisfying happened, yes it was yes. <laughs> well satisfying but also titillating maybe that's yeah. not what i think it is or maybe but like still the fact that they're doing what they're doing with it in such a brilliant way you know is 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 it's fascinating what what's the postmortem as one geek to another on rise of skywalker Let's be honest here. What happened, Patton? This is just one geek's opinion. I loved um, The Last Jedi. thought it was fucking brilliant, I'm and I'll you. fight all anyone on it. All the way. Um, all these people, fucking um, Force Awakens comes out and was like, it's just the same goddamn thing. Ryan Johnson comes along, takes it in new directions, which is what Empire did. And everyone goes, what's all this new shit? And then um, the rise of the Skywalker people, God bless them, they got spooked by the internet. They should have just gone, hey, fuck you guys. We want, we want to keep going. The, he opened up this whole new run. That thing at the end where the kid just randomly moves the broom, and you're like, oh, the Force has no plan. It just goes anywhere. It still comes down to people's moral choices as to where to take that, which is what the Mandalorian is doing in a brilliant way with, with Baby Yoda. But he opened this door, and then... Um, you just can't, I mean, again, all these, all these fucking angry nerds who, by the way, are also about fucking never apologize and don't listen to all this goddamn PC SJW shit. Yeah, well, let's take this to the next step. Just don't listen to the internet, period. Just fucking go do something creative that you want to fucking do. And then people, no one knows what they fucking want. Do what you think is creative and risky and people will show the fuck up for it. Has your buddy Jason Reitman given you a sneak peek? at the new Ghostbusters, Patton? I am not going to say. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. I am but, not going to say. Should I be excited as a Ghostbusters fan and a Jason Reitman fan? Uh, I, I'm not going to say. <laughs> okay, fair okay, okay, all right. But look at my smile. <laughs> they can't see it, but I can. He's oh, smiling. Okay. Sorry. Have you ever have you ever made a, a pitch for? I mean, you've done so much for Disney. Have you made like a Star Wars like Dis Disney Plus TV show pitch, an animated series pitch? 
No, I, I mean, I, again, I want to, as much as I love playing in the toy boxes, I want to create my own toy box. I mean, if I was in my 20s, yeah, I'd want to do that as a way to like learn how to do it. But now that I'm in my 50s, if I do create stuff, I mean, yeah, MODOK was MODOK, but I want to now create my own realm. I want to try, whether it fails or not, I just, I did a few comics for DC and Dark Horse this summer that'll come out in the fall. Um, did a Modoc miniseries to tie in with our TV show, but I I want to create some original stuff and then see if it's good enough for other people to run with. You know, I want to I just I, I just want to know if I have it in me. I, maybe I don't, but I got to know one way or the other. So there's some stuff I'm gonna I think once things get rolling again, there's stuff I want to create from the ground up and to see how that feels. What's the most prized piece of movie memorabilia that you own, Patton? <laughs> The most prized piece of movie memorabilia. I have the original maquette that um, uh, that the Pixar guys used the sculpture of Remy when they were figuring out because they build you know three D models of it before they animate it. So I have that, and you see like where they finally nailed it. And the thing I wish I could find is apparently Brad Bird did a pencil test of Remy doing my. Uh, Black Angus Steakhouse bit, which, and he showed it to Disney. He's like, this is the voice I want. And they're like, well, he's really cursing a lot. And they're like, no, no, he's, he won't be like cursing in the movie like this, you weirdo. So like, I, so there was that, I'm trying to find that, but yeah, the little Remy maquette is, is really beautiful. That's awesome. There's something really amazing about that. Uh, well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. You've got 7,000 projects to attend to. A yes, I do. And a country to I, save. I have my daughter's lunch to attend to. So Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but I will, I will mention again, Patton Oswalt's six-pack movie marathon, uh, September, oh, sorry, November 7th, Saturday, 9 a.m. Pacific time, noon Eastern time. Uh, there's an encore presentation on November 8th at noon and 3 p.m. Eastern. Can be viewed on Shout Factory's main website and a thousand other platforms that I'm sure you guys can figure out because you guys are all smart. Yes. Uh, right? Yes, uh, goddammit. <laughs> uh, Patton, thanks so much for your time, man. Hey, but dude, thanks for having me on. And please, please be safe. Uh, there's no second wave coming. The first wave never went away. And now that the winter's coming, it's going to be even worse. So please, please be safe, okay? And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha